Hi, listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everybody left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with professionals in the grief world. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofaro, and produced by the Dougie Center for Grieving Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. When someone dies, many of the people left behind seek out formal sources of help, maybe seeing a therapist or attending a traditional support group. What happens, though, when those avenues don't feel like the right fit? This is what today's guests, Carla Fernandez and Lennon Flowers, co-founders of The Dinner Party, ran into after they both lost a parent to cancer in their early 20s. The first in her peer groups to be facing a loss of this magnitude, Carla felt isolated with her friends, but then when she went to a support group, it was made up of mostly older adults. These adults were also grieving the death of a parent, but they were in really different places in their lives. And it was hard to feel like she was among peers when the other group members had spent 30 more years with their parent than she did. It was out of this need to be with people her own age, who were also grieving, that the dinner party began. It started as one dinner among five young adults in a Los Angeles backyard. Lennon, a co-host of that first dinner, had gotten really good at hiding her story. She didn't want to make other people who hadn't experienced a loss feel uncomfortable. So an invitation to dinner to talk openly about grief came as a refreshing reprieve. Since that first dinner in 2010, the dinner party has grown to have over 275 hosts in over 100 cities. It's a community made up of those ages 21 to 40 who are seeking connection, friendship, and meaningful conversations about loss and the lives that we live after the death of someone close to us. Carla and Lennon, thank you for joining me today to talk about the dinner party. Great to be here. Likewise. I'm really looking forward to hearing more about the dinner party, but can we start with each of your stories? Carla, what kind of father was your dad and how do you carry him with you? And Lennon, for you, the same question about your mom. Yeah, so um, my dad's name was Jose Fernandez and he was a really brilliant, passionate person. He spent his childhood really obsessed with music, um, ended up going to Juilliard to study orchestral conducting and Um, Later in life, kind of by chance, ended up in the wine business and spent um, the majority of his career um, helping to build up wine brands. So wine and food was a really big part of our family dynamic growing up. It made sense to me that after he died, I craved very much the kind of environment that he would help us create, which was spaces for long meals and reflection and talking about our days and our lives and Um, When he died of cancer when I was 21, that really felt like one of the big voids that his death left in my life was that kind of um, family dinner setting. So started hosting dinners, coming from that sense of craving, um, of wanting a place to sit down and break bread and unpack um, what had been a really intense year of his illness with brain cancer and all of the big questions that came up after that. And Lennon, how about for you? Yeah, um, my mom, Sue Flowers. I grew up in North Carolina, as did I. I'm, and my mom was a complicated character um, and uh, a fierce and deeply devoted, loving mom. My parents divorced when I was uh, about five or so. You know, in a lot of ways, my mom never, even after remarrying, um, never fully left the identity 
of a you know single parent you know and her primary passion in the world was being a mother she was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer my senior year of high school um, and I was at the time hell bent on getting as far out of North Carolina as I could and then you know on that day everything changed what we didn't know at the time she didn't tell us was that she was given a six-month diagnosis and she ended up surviving four years you know in those four years of her illness when I, I ended up going to school about 20 minutes from home and kind of became really gifted in compartmentalizing my life and one that was all about cancer and caregiving and then one that was you know trying my darndest to live the life of a college student you know my kind of survival mechanism of the time was to get really really busy I got really good at hiding that part of my life. By the time I met Carla three and a half years after her death, I hadn't developed the kind of vocabulary with which to talk about my mother and the ways in which her loss continued to show up in my life. But I did have at least the kind of foundation, you know, of a childhood where we did do family dinner every night. You know, there was nothing special but the ritual of gathering was certainly present. And the legacy of my mother as a person who had an unusual capacity for real talk, you know, was something that I very much carried with me. And you've both mentioned how your experience of grieving your parents led to creating the dinner party. But can you share a bit more about the origin story and what was that first gathering like? So the, the initial dinner, and it's, it's, it feels like a long time ago now because it was. Um, we sat down to dinner for the first time in way back in 2010. Um, <laughs> but that first dinner, we had zero intention or strategy or design to do anything other than just have dinner that night. Lennon and I were co-workers at the time. And after a few months of working together really closely, I kind of finally admitted that my dad had recently died. <clears throat> I think we'd both gotten really good at hiding that part of our story, as Lennon just said. Anyways, I shared with her that my dad had recently died of cancer, and instead of giving me the normal deer in the headlights look, we often say the sort of, mm. ah, you know, <laughs> how do I respond? Someone just said something sad and awkward, quickly change the subject. Instead, Lennon was like, actually, me too. Um, and it was one of the first times that I'd met someone following the death of my dad where I didn't feel like bringing that up make, made me feel more like an alien. I actually felt seen and was able to connect with her in that moment. and. We decided to have an evening that could really just be dedicated to going there. And um, so I invited Lennon over and a handful of other people who I'd met who'd also experienced loss, similar age group. And it felt like a social experiment and it could have been a terrible idea, um, <laughs> but it ended up being really quite the opposite. And, you know, it took a little bit of coaxing. We were doing a really good job of avoiding the topic and um, I, eventually toasted to my dad and his life and invited other people to do the same for the people that they that brought them to the table. And what was surprising, I think, to all of us was that we had so much to say um, and, and so much to say that wasn't just about the diagnosis or the death or the accident or whatever had brought someone to the table, but about life after and these sort of questions that you never think you'll end up asking, but inherently most 20 and 30 somethings do you know how does this affect dating how does this affect the rest of your family dynamics that are now shifting um, how is this affecting your friendships so we spent that first night late into the evening talking and um, some people even spent the night um, and we sort of at the end of that conversation decided to keep going 
um, and would meet about once a month um, until we realized that we weren't the only five people on the planet who were hungry for this kind of space. Um, that was quite the opposite. So that's when we sort of started to realize we were at the beginning of something bigger than just a table of five. And Lennon, for you, it's, as someone who'd worked really hard to kind of keep your lives very separate, grief life, mm-hmm. every other life, <laughs> how, how was it for you to sit down and talk about the weather and then like, okay, now we're going to open the door and really talk openly about this grief and how it's affected us? Yeah. Um, you know, I think I showed up, um, I, you know, I, I can still remember, you know, walking up the hill to Carla's house and knocking on the door at that first moment. And I think I showed up the way that any dinner partier does the first time, which was with a lot of trepidation, you know, and in a lot of ways, I didn't, you know, at that time, I didn't actually identify as grieving in the acute sense. I'd approached grief early on um, the way I approached, you know, everything as a worrywart nerd, which was like, I'm going to get an A on this. First, when, when do I sit for my grief exams? Exactly, exactly. Um, can I, you know, like, I really want to score well on this. But by the time I, I met Carla, I felt like things were okay. You know, I'd just gotten this new job and moved out to California and I liked it. But what was interesting in that um, was that my life was no less colored by my mother's absence. Everything from the fact that home was no longer a physical place for me um, and it wouldn't be until I chose to create one myself to the complicated relationships with the living, you know, my brother, my stepfather, who was in a new relationship, all of these things, right, um, were very present in my life, but I didn't have any vocabulary to go there. And every time it came up, I had that moment of terror of, oh, I'm, I'm sorry for making you feel weird with my life. And so I think Carla's invitation came at a moment in which, I, in which I was searching for something that could also be life-affirming. In addition to that kind of feeling of trepidation, there was also a real excitement about entering that conversation um, where quite literally everything could be on the table. A lot of what you're sharing sounds really similar to the support groups that we run for young adults here at the Dougie Center. Carla, how would you say that the dinner party is different from a traditional support group? That has been a question that we have been holding in the many years we've been doing this work. And we've definitely gone through some different phases and levels of maturity around it. You know, I think in the very beginning, I was, I didn't have the, you know, the opportunity to go to somewhere as as amazing as the Dougie Center and did find myself in a more traditional grief support group and had the sort of circle of metal folding chairs under fluorescent lights with a box of tissues in the middle of the circle experience in a group of people that had also lost a parent but were parents themselves and were in their 50s and their 60s. I have a really strong memory of sitting down in that circle and feeling worse at the other side of it than I did when I came in. And that mostly had to do with the fact that the stories that were being shared around that circle felt so different than what I was going through and the questions they were asking felt so different. And, and, you know, I think that Lennon and I both had a period when we first started doing this where we really leaned into this as sort of, you know, a punk rock version of grief support and it's for (laughs) us, by us. And, and where we've landed is the fact that places like the Dougie Center exist for such an important reason. And so many of our dinner partiers reach out to more traditional grief support groups when they're in a phase of acute grief and what we're realizing is that the dinner party is, is very much a complement to more traditional grief support, therapy, reading, 
body work, you know, all of the different things that people might find helpful following their loss. And what we're realizing, you know, we have a partnership with um, New Hope, which is a grief support center in Long Beach. And David Leonard, who's their executive director, puts it really beautifully where, you know, they have their more sort of traditional groups. And he frames that as a conversation that can sometimes feel more like him as a facilitator is talking to the group of people who are there. Um, they've also launched dinner party tables for people who have kind of quote unquote graduated from their set groups. Um, and those have become places where sort of alumni of their programs can continue to gather and where the conversation feels more like talking with. And David mm. has participated in those and, and can come forward not just with his executive director facilitator hat, but as someone who's also experienced loss. And that's the reason why he's been drawn to this work. And even he's able to show up in that more as a peer than as an expert. Yeah, and, and we're excited to continue to deepen our partnerships and relationships with organizations that are meeting people on day one and figure out how this sort of ongoing peer model where people are really becoming friends and friends for life um, and are able to get together on that 10-year anniversary of somebody's passing and continue that connection and conversation. Um, you know, how can we help step in to, to build out that ongoing community work within existing organizations? When a dinner party comes together, are there particular guidelines or boundaries about the types of conversations that happen or the topics that people can or can't bring up? Yeah. Um, so we do have a set of guidelines and it's, it's not actually content-based, you know, of what is allowed here. Um, the thing that's certainly not allowed is advice giving and fixing it. This is actually a space in which we are simply here to witness one another, that every story is a different story, right? My story is very different from my brother's story, um, despite the fact that the characters in our narrative um, are the same. And, and so this is a space in which to recognize and hold both the kind of commonalities and affirmations and validations of like, oh, wow, I'm not alone. And yes, me too. So that's our first rule. And then the second piece is just that this isn't, a, you know, to use um, a phrase of Parker Palmer of the Center for Courage and Renewal, you know, this is not a share or die event. And we welcome silence as much as we welcome speech. Um, and then third and finally, that this is a confidential space. What is said around a table stays here, which is really important, you know, in the age of the internet. You know, our goal is not to create it's not to create, you know, a beautiful um, table that you immediately share on Instagram or Pinterest. You know, we are big fans, you know, of bags of potato chips and lowering the barrier to the mediocre cooks among us, myself included. Nor is it a space in which afterwards, in, in order to kind of establish that really deep trust, we have to know that our stories will be held sacred as sacred. Beyond that, the kind of content of a conversation is really um, you know, we start the first time that people are coming together, what is it that brings you here? And implied within that um, is who is it that brings you here? And recognizing that not every story of grief is a story of a loved one. Um, we grieve the living and the people with whom we had hard and challenging relationships. So all of it is welcome. And then that second quest question of where are you now, which is really meant to get past the point of, you know, what are the the moments of diagnosis or the dumb things that somebody said at a funeral, but actually using, you know, conversation as a mindfulness tool and a chance to check in with you. What actually feels true today, not five months ago or five years ago. 
really appreciate the idea of inviting folks to come into the space and leave our more socialized habits at the door. Habits like you mentioned of putting a positive spin on things or trying to fix somebody or just filling in the gaps of silence with a trivial platitude just to make it feel less uncomfortable. It seems like those spaces are so rare in the world. One of the interesting things we've noticed actually really in the last year is the community that we work with, mostly 20 and 30 somethings, there's this stigma that we're always on our phones and constantly texting and can't go for 20 minutes without taking phones out. And we had a moment where we were realizing that we weren't getting as many photographs from the dinners as we were hoping to get just for our own records and promotion and to tell the story of the tables. And and then we realized that it's because people's phones stay in their bags in the kitchen for the whole dinner. And it's not because there's a rule around it. It's because people are deeply, deeply present at these conversations. So it's interesting. We set these guidelines to help shift people out of their sort of normal protocol. And then there's also some really nice natural behavior that's happening where people are trading, treating these dinners as really sacred. And I think because the invitation is one that is asking them to step into a kind of conversation that we don't usually get to have. I think there's a level of cherishing and respect that's also happening when people come together. So I think part of our work is also reframing stereotypes around what it means to be a millennial. And it's not that people don't want to talk about death. They very much do. And it's also interesting to see how um, people are naturally behaving when they're, when they're coming to these things too. In our last few moments together, what's next for the dinner party? And if a listener out there is thinking, oh, this sounds amazing. How do I get involved? How do I join a table? How do I start a table? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So a couple of things, you know, as an organization, you know, one of the things that we've realized is that we're not here to solve grief um, because, you know, by the way, grief isn't a thing that you can solve. But one thing that we can do um, and know a thing or two about um, is solving, you know, isolation and the endemic loneliness and the fact that our most important stories, you know, and the seed beds of our deepest relationships and most honest conversations tend to be the things that we actually don't share um, in everyday conversation, even with, you know, some of our closest friends as we kind of walk the world projecting. So a lot of, um, you know, what we're beginning to kind of experiment with are other applications and other isolated experiences, you know, where this methodology might serve, beginning to work with uh, a group of U.S. Navy SEALs, uh, women uh, in, in the services for whom survival is dependent on actually, you know, bottling up a lot of vulnerability and actually presenting a particular image of strength, but for whom there's a lot of, um, you know, the kind of compounding sources of loss from combat to high divorce rates to sexual assault. There are a lot of elephants roaming those rooms that then lead to getting out of the services, high rates of depression and, and all of that. And so how might we hold space in a different kind of way around the you know, myriad sources of stories and loss experiences that each of us carry alone. So that's one part. As an organization, um, you know, we're really excited. We finally figured out, you know, I think from the very beginning, one of our challenges was we were overwhelmed with demand. The hard part is figuring out how do we grow a, a peer community that is vibrant around the world Um, And that isn't just the word community and name only, because a lot of the issues that get in the way are fairly mundane, you know, and everything from I don't want to deal with traffic to the moments in which scheduling is hard or somebody says something at a table or dominates a conversation 
and maybe it wasn't as perfect as you dreamed it would be. So maybe you won't do it again. And actually the reality is that a lot of those issues are addressable. Much more of our work these days is about working deeply with our hosts, working deeply with our community um, and actually problem solving around those issues um, so that we can continue to extend the invitation um, and keep these communities and budding zones of friendship really alive. So I think in a lot of ways, the next steps for us is just continuing to do what we do and doing it better. In terms of how to join um, and how to start a table of your own, go to www.thedinnerparty.org and there's instructions on how to apply to, to join um, or to host. Um, we're constantly looking for hosts. And again, you know, the most important um, kind of quality that we look for in host are people who both want to be a part of the community that they're creating, who can give self-permission, you know, to other people around the table to be honest and vulnerable, but who have a real capacity for listening and an ability to hold space, not only for themselves, but for other people and who want this and want to put that time in. So very much encourage folks wherever you are. We have more than 40 tables in New York now and tables in cities ranging from Indianapolis to Saskatoon in Canada. And listeners, it sounds like there's no pressure to be uh, culinarily skilled. You do not have to be a good cook to host a party or to show up at the party. You can just bring your bag of chips. Absolutely. Absolutely. I can attest. Well, Carla and Lennon, I so appreciate you taking time today to talk with me and with our listeners and for, I mean, this work you're doing that started a decade ago, it's truly phenomenal, the network out there for young adults in grief who may not have access to grief support services or who may find that traditional grief support services are not what's working well for them. So thank you for this contribution. Thank you so much for having us. Likewise. And listeners, go check out their website, see if there's a table near you, and if not, reach out to them about how to start one in your own community. We really appreciate you being part of our listening audience. If you want to find any of our past episodes, you can find us at our website or any of the places that you get your podcasts. And if you have an idea for a guest or a topic you want to hear us talk about, send us an email, help at Dougie.org. Thanks for listening. Hope you'll join us again next time.